we want to continue our um, long-term series looking at how God organically and gradually through these scriptures reveals his plan of redemption and we we have got reached a point last time where we were considering remembering these two things one was the the blessing that Noah placed upon his sons in fact in Canaan's case it was a curse um, Jephthah's blessing was a long term one one that would be far into the future with the ingathering or preaching to the Gentiles but the, there was a great blessing upon Shem and his line and then we spoke about the Tower of Babel and how God scattered <clears throat> nations across the face of the earth and we sort of reached a point um, in chapter 11 verses 10 to 29 where we're given a, a, a genealogy because we've come across quite a few genealogies already haven't we, in Genesis but this particular genealogy in chapter 11 beginning from verse 10 is a very focused one it's focused only upon the line of Shem and it begins to say with Shem the son of Noah and it concludes with Abraham the son of Terah and so as we have seen already <clears throat> there is this deliberate narrowing this deliberate focusing of God's plan of redemption beginning with Genesis 3.15 the promise of Messiah and God's revelation now develops through the descendants of Shem, that son which had the blessing placed upon him. And over time, the focus narrows even further, more narrowly, onto a single individual, Abraham. And we remember that Shem was subject to his father's doxological blessing. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And this blessing works itself out through this genealogy in, in uh, chapter 11 and culminates uh, in the calling of Abraham, descendant of Shem through Eber. And so we can't separate what we're discussing and studying tonight. We can't separate the revelation through Abraham from, firstly, what we, that, that proto-Evangelion, that first gospel in Genesis 3, verse 15, which we've studied so much. And we can't separate it either from the prophetic blessing that Noah placed upon the line of Shem. Genesis 3.15 inaugurates what we call the covenant of grace. God's plan of redemption. Um, quick definition of the covenant of grace is God saving sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a very simple definition of the covenant of grace. And it all started in that promise in the garden after Adam and Eve fell. And it uh, 
takes up speed, as it were, through the blessing upon Shem by Noah. But now we reach the point in God's plan where Abraham is born. And Abraham's life and the covenant God made with him in this unfolding revelation reaches a, a distinctive stage, a new stage. It's new, but it's linked organically to all that has taken place before and it's linked to all that will happen in, in the future. So this evening I want to um, begin a study, because we're not going to get very far tonight, you know me, I'm never get through my notes. To begin a study on the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to focus on the Abrahamic covenant rather than Abraham himself. This is not going to be a Bible character study, although there might be an element of that as well. But I really want to study how the Bible uses this Abrahamic covenant in its the unfolding, the mapping out of the revelation of God's plan of salvation. And so, then, in Abraham, the chosen genealogical line of Shem reaches to this particular Hebrew who um, is called initially Abraham, later Abraham, I'm just going to call him Abraham because I'm not going to remember to call him Abraham. Initially, as I say, he was called Abraham. And in him, the blessing upon Shem begins to find fulfilment. God gradually focuses, focuses saving grace through Abraham by means of this covenant that he made with him. And this covenant acts as a bridge, as I've said, between all that God has already done and this future outworking of his gracious plan. I emphasise that because in the wisdom of God, in the old and in the new covenants, there is only one unified covenant of grace. Not everybody believes that, but... Reformed, I think the vast majority of Reformed teach, teaching is that there is one single covenant of grace in the Old Testament running through into the New Testament. There are different administrations of it uh, through various other covenants, but there is just one gospel. And this covenant with Abraham, which we're going to study is more than just a, a small or an incremental step in God's revelation. It's a giant step forward. And it really becomes the foundation stone for the rest of the Bible. Um, within the Abrahamic covenant are promises which will find fulfilment both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament stages of God's covenantal kingdom. And we see how the Apostle Paul roots the New Covenant in the Abrahamic Covenant. He explains it in terms of the Abrahamic Covenant. Genesis 3 verse 8. It says, And the scripture 
referring to um, to this chapter, Paul says that the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying in thee shall all nations be blessed. Now we often don't think of it in that way, do we? But the scripture foreseeing that God would justify unbelievers through faith before the New Testament preached the gospel unto Abraham saying in thee shall all nations be blessed. You see, we mustn't put a, a wedge between the Old and the New Testament is one covenant of grace. Before going much further, we should define, um, I suppose, what we mean by the Abrahamic covenant. Um, well, in the first place, we, we mean the promise God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, which we read. And in those verses, Abraham is promised a great land, he's promised a great nation, he's promised a great name, and he's promised that a great blessing that will begin with him but extend to all the families of the earth. But I think also included in the widest definition of the Abrahamic covenant, we have to include not only this initial promise, but also the whole um, complex of God's covenantal transactions with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, because there were various further ratifications and others, which we'll come on to at some point, with these other patriarchs, but it's all the same Abrahamic covenant. task then um, over probably two or three evenings maybe is to really try and get a handle on the character and the meaning of this Abrahamic covenant and to really try and understand uh, how it informs the whole of redemptive revelation. As I say, we're not going to particularly focus on Abraham as an individual, but I think what is most important for the type of study we're doing is to understand what this covenant reveals about the gospel mm -hmm. and what it reveals about the character of God. So there are three aspects of this Abrahamic covenant which I'd like us to consider, and I think we're only going to be doing one of these this evening. Three characteristics, if you like, which are vital for us to understand. Now, this is just to understand the character. We need to come on at some point to the content. But three points which describe the, the character of this covenant. The first one is the covenant with Abraham was a covenant of promise. The second is the covenant with Abraham was an exercise of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty. And then thirdly, the covenant with Abraham was a command to obedience. Now, we're going to study this evening 
the first one, the covenant with Abraham was a covenant of promise. So if we just think about those, those first three verses we read in chapter 12, what was the first thing that struck you when you read them, or maybe when you read them previously? If I was to ask you what principle is at work, what would you think? Is it the principle of grace, or is it the principle of works, if you put it that way? thing that strikes us, of course, is that these three verses are full of divine promise, which carries within it the principle of free grace. When God makes a promise, it distinguishes it from law, because the gospel is about promise. It's a principle of free grace, the very opposite of works. The big question the Bible uh, addresses and, and answers, sort of asks and answers, is how can man truly know real blessedness, true happiness, if you like, true fulfillment? And the covenant with Abraham really answers that question. Just thinking back to last time we had our study. The covenant with Abraham is, is, a, is a big contrast, isn't it, to um, the Tower of Babel history. You see, they, they, they were trying to address the same question. How can, I, how can we achieve real blessedness in life? And their method, the Babelites, their method in Shinar, was independent human effort, wasn't it? The Babelites um, wanted to climb up to God. Um, the deacon Stephen in Acts explains that God, in contrast with Abraham, came down to Abraham. The God of glory appeared, Stephen says, unto our father Abraham. So man, in, his, in, in the works principle, tries to reach God, but free grace in the covenant of grace is God in his condescension coming down, appearing to us in free grace. The Babelites tried to reach heaven with a tower and said, let us make a name. Let us make a, a name for ourselves. But in the Abrahamic covenant, what happens? God promises Abraham, I will bless thee and make thy name great. You see, God makes the name of Abraham great. Not him trying to make his own name great through works. Babel, the city that these people made, was man-built. It was human invention, it was human architecture, it was human effort. But the city promised to Abraham is built by God, isn't it? A city which hath foundations, the scripture says, whose builder and maker is God. You see, God builds the city. 
It's the complete opposite to what the Babel arts did. Their method of salvation, of trying to be saved, to, to reach blessedness with God, is the complete opposite of the Abrahamic covenant. What was sought in Shinar by human effort was bestowed on Abraham as a covenant promise. Grace, not works. And I'm sure, I don't need to tell you this, most of this you will already know, but this particular characteristic of the Abrahamic covenant is made a lot, a lot of by the Apostle Paul. So much so that Paul uses Abraham as the model for justification by faith. In the New Testament, God's covenant with Abraham is made synonymous with the gospel of grace. So, for example, we won't spend too much on this, too much time on this, but for example, in Galatians 3, Paul compares the covenant with Abraham with the covenant with Moses. And he does this in order to highlight the principle of grace as the opposite of the principle of works. In Galatians 3, verses 16 to 18, he identifies the Abrahamic covenant as one of promise and the Mosaic covenant as operating on the principle of works. Let's quickly turn to Galatians 3, 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. You see, it's a covenant of promise. He saith not unto seeds as to many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And, and, th and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. So Paul identifies the Abrahamic covenant as one of promise and the Mosaic covenant as one of works. In Romans chapter 4, if you turn there, Paul again contrasts the works principle in the law with the gospel promised to Abraham. In Romans 4, 4 Paul emphasizes that it was the faith of Abraham that appropriated the promise. So, Romans 4.16, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. It was through faith, not law, that Abraham inherited the promises. Romans 4.13, for the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It couldn't be plain, could it? Promise was made to Abraham and wrote in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. How was that going to be fulfilled? Was it through the law? Through the principle of works? No, Paul says. Not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Through faith. 
Paul emphasises the whole time that the Abrahamic covenant was the anticipation of the new covenant. That it wasn't a matter of Abraham's or any of the patriarchs' merit, but it was a matter of, of promise and faith. Faith, promise, promise, faith. It doesn't matter which way round you put it. Because he says in Romans 4 verse 2, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. You see, it wasn't, he wasn't justified by works, so therefore it was not based on his merit. And therefore there are no, there are no grounds for boosting. All that Abraham did, this is literally the case, all that Abraham did was to say, Amen. To God's promises, putting it simple, simply, he just said, Thank you, Lord. Didn't do anything. And that, that faith, that holding Eddie's hands to receive in simple faith was counted to him as righteousness. Did nothing. It was all of free grace. That is the, that's what marks out. The covenant of grace, that, that is what marks out this Abrahamic covenant. And what I want to emphasize, because this is this is a Bible study tonight rather than a sermon as such. This promise, faith, and grace principle didn't, as most as often people think, suddenly start in the New Testament. Principle of promise, faith, and free grace operated right through the Old Testament. It operated right here at the beginning with the covenant with Abraham, right through the Old Testament, right through the administration of the covenant of grace into the New Testament. So salvation, justification in the Old Testament is not different than in the new covenant. Salvation in the old as well as in the new was always through faith, by grace, in the salvation promise of God sending the Messiah. It operated this principle of um, the covenant of grace, this Abrahamic covenant, operated in and through all the administrations of the covenant of grace, including the Mosaic administration. When the, the, the covenant with Moses came in, which we'll come on to in due course, the Abrahamic covenant wasn't disbanded. To be saved, to truly be saved and to be born again and to be one of the elect was through the principle of faith and not through law not through human effort this is Paul's argument the law Paul writes was added 430 years afterwards after the Abrahamic covenant 430 years of law was added and when it was added it did not disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. The law had a specific purpose, and I'm going to 
we go into the law tonight because there's going to be another study. But the law had a specific purpose and it furthered the covenant of grace as well by acting as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. But the principles the same. Even in the, under the administration of the law, to be saved was to exercise faith in the free offer of grace by God in Christ. And so the first thing I want us to grasp is that the Abrahamic covenant is characterised by promise. And these promises contain redemptive blessings which are fulfilled in Scripture in the Old and the New Covenant stages. And we'll see as we go on how God's saving grace in and through Christ is the underlying explanation of the blessings contained in the covenant with Abraham. In other words, but more simply, the Abrahamic covenant is Christ-centred. Now, of course, I'm not saying that they had the full grasp intellectually of, of the things that we know. It may have been, they may have had a, a dim, maybe distant understanding, but the faith was the same. They were relying on the mercy and the grace of God. I want us now to consider something else under the same heading of the promise, the nature of the, of the Abrahamic covenant being a covenant of promise. And as we consider this next point, I think um, this Christ-centeredness will be underlined. And to do this, we need to turn now to Genesis 15, which we read. Um, I referred earlier to Genesis 12, 1-3 as the Abrahamic Covenant. And nearly everyone does, and all the commentaries do. But to be strictly accurate, um, Genesis 12 is the covenantal call of Abraham and the promise that was made. Because in strictly covenantal terms, the covenant was not made ceremonially until Genesis 15. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is in the form of a simple promise. But God's covenantal commitment to Abraham progressed in Genesis 15 from promise to a divine oath. In fact, there were a number of oaths that God made in relation to this Abrahamic covenant. We're only going to consider this, this one, I think, the most important one. And this ratification of the covenant, that, of the promises that God had made in Genesis 12, is a very striking oath, which formalised and ratified, as I say, the promise made to Abraham. It's estimated that by the time we get to Genesis 15 in this story here, some 14 years had passed since God had told Abraham that he would be a blessing to the world and that he would have a massive family. 
But now God not only promises, but he makes an oath that he will keep his promises. This is amazing sometimes when you think about how far God comes down to us. Not only is God prepared to make a promise, he's prepared to make an oath that he will keep his own promise. We didn't need to do that, did he? But the, here's Abraham, Abraham, 14 years and he's still childless. All his money is going to go to Eliezer, his Damascus, his servant. And he's effectively saying to God, please God, don't give me any, anything more, because all, it's just all going to go in my will to the servant. What I need is a son. And God says, go outside, look up into the sky. I'm going to put on a star shape for you. And you try and number all the stars. See if you can number them, Abraham. And he says, So shall thy seed be. And then God proceeds with this oath, ceremony, this ratification of the covenant. God's willingness to, con- to condescend to, to Abraham and to us. And so there is this advancement from promise to oath. And quite later on actually, in Genesis 24 verse 7, Abraham is, is looking back on all of this and he's meditating and he, he, he tracks this progress of, uh, of promise to oath in, in Genesis chapter 24, verse 7. He says, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, that's Genesis 1, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and that swear unto me, that's Genesis 15. Saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. God speaks in his promise, and God swears in his oath. And uh, in verse 18 of chapter 15, we read, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Verse 8 of chapter 15, Abraham. Despite even what God had already said to him, despite looking at the stars and God speaking to him yet again, Abraham still asks for further corroboration from God. He said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? This is Abraham, the man of faith. And after all that he's been given, 
all that God, he says, is a land. Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? God, God could have said, get out of here. I'm not doing anything else. But in response to Abraham's desire for this further confirmation, God seals his promise with an oath. And in verse 9 following, we read of this very strange ritual. The ritual of the passage through the midst of, of the slain and divided animals. And this ritual uh, involved the cutting or severing of animals and lining them up in parallel lines and making a kind of path. And it was a common way of ratifying uh, a covenant between two parties. And it was all very weird and way outside of our culture and way of doing things. But it was a way of ratifying covenants. And we have an example of it, a reference, an illusion really, um, to this ritual in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 and 19. He says, I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me. And this is it. When they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests, and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. So as I say, when covenants were made in the ancient Near East, two parties would kill an animal or animals and cut them in half and lay them out in a parallel lines and both parties would walk through the path that they had made And they acted out the judgment curse which would come upon the covenant breaker. Basically saying, if I break this covenant, may the same thing that has happened to these animals, the curse that has come on these animals, may it come on me. That was how a covenant was ratified. But what do we read of here in Genesis 15? Something very similar, but with a difference. Because there is only one party of this covenant that walks through the midst, through the path of these slain animals. And it's not Abraham. It is God. God, in his manifested presence, in two ascending columns, one a column of smoke rising from the oven, and the other the soaring tongue of flame from the torch walked the way of the oath passage passing between the pieces. That's an amazing thing, dear friends. An absolutely amazing thing. Here we see the Lord effectively taking a self-maledictory oath 
basically saying, God is saying, if I break this covenant with Abraham, may I be destroyed. To use colloquial language, I swear by my own life that the co- this covenant will be maintained and fulfilled. God walks the path, the oath passage, himself. He makes the oath. God makes the oath. There's no record here of Abraham as we would expect making an oath to God. That's what we would expect, isn't it? I promise God, I promise you God that I will be a, a, a good patriarch, that I will be a good believer. I promise that I'll keep the covenant. None of that at all. Hebrews 6, 13, it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. You see, God made the oath. And God himself, through a theophany, which we've spoken about theophanies before, Old Testament, but God himself, through a theophany, walks the path of dereliction and destruction, the way through the divided animals. And that way was a frightful death curse. If the covenant was broken, the curse would come upon the covenant breaking. And it was made infinitely more frightful on this occasion because it was the Lord walking through these divided animals. Because it was the Lord taking the oath. It says, Abraham, when the sun was going down, fell into a deep sleep. And verse 12 of chapter 15, lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. Such was the gravity, such was the significance of what was happening here. It's an amazing thing, dear friends, how this divine promise was accompanied with a divine oath. And that's why we, we sang earlier a debtor to mercy alone, of, of covenant mercy I sing. What more do we need to rely on than this covenant of grace which God not only promises but has made an, an oath to keep and to never break. And we know that God always keeps covenant forever. That he would never have broken his covenant with Abraham. But here we need to rely on previous studies and and think about the Bible more generally. Because we know that God's plan of salvation, the Messiah's victory over the serpent, necessarily would involve the bruising of Messiah's heel. That was what Genesis 3.15 promised. The head of the serpent would be crushed, but the seed of the woman's heel would be bruised. So the attainment of, of the redemption through Abraham comes only through the suffering of the seed of Abraham. That promised one. That individual seed who would be the suffering servant. The surety of the covenantal oath to Abraham. And 
and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so, the plan of redemption is that although the Lord of glory, our Saviour, the seed of the woman, would not undergo the curse of Genesis 15 as a covenant breaker, it was only by suffering the curse of a broken covenant that he could keep the covenant. In other words, the curse that would come through breaking this covenant would come upon the Messiah in order to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. No wonder then, Abraham was plunged into darkness. No wonder that at the cross, Matthew says from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the whole land was pitched in darkness. Because in taking that oath in Genesis 15, our Saviour, God, made an oath to keep the covenant. To keep the covenant of grace at the cost of the substitutionary death of his precious beloved Son. Christ would redeem us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. And so our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, he walked that path of dereliction. It must be significant, mustn't it, that in Genesis 15, God walked through the divided heifer, the she-goat, the ram, the turtle dove, and the young pigeon. I think it was a young pigeon that wasn't divided, but all the main animals, all, all the main animals that were used at the altar, all the main animals that were used for sacrifice in the Old Testament worship of God in the temple, they were the ones that were used in this pathway. You see, what we're reading of here in Genesis 15 is... The promise, the prof a prophecy of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Jesus that would bear the curse for us, so that the, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, so that the Gentiles would be saved, so that the promised Japheth would come true, and all the islands would come faith would, would be rich with the gospel. Told Shem to enlarge the tent pegs, to make their tents bigger so that the Gentiles could, could have room to come in. All of that could only happen if Christ died. If the promise to Abraham, the covenant with Abraham was kept and it was only in the death of Christ that that was possible. So to put your faith in the promise made to Abraham in the Old Testament was to put your faith in the cross. They, they wouldn't necessarily have been conscious of that. But 
In redemptive terms, that's what was happening. Putting their faith in the sufferings of the Messiah, yet to be endured. The darkness, the violence, the blood, the death, the curse, the dereliction in this ceremony, all speaks of the cross of our Saviour. It was a passage through the valley of the shadow of death. God took an oath which was a commitment to the death passage of Jesus in the darkness of Calvary. And if Jesus did not walk in that way, the covenant with Abraham would never have been fulfilled. The writer to the Hebrews says that Christ opened a new and living way which he hath consecrated us, consecrated for us, through the veil, that veil that was rent. That is to say, his flesh, that flesh which was rent, which was divided. You see, his broken body and his shed blood ratifies the new covenant. It is the surety of a better covenant. After the same manner also Jesus took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. You see, it's in Christ, in his broken body and in his shed blood, that this covenant of grace is sure and firm and fulfilled. Christ was cursed for you and me. And our response is to be one of faith. To believe in Christ through faith, in the grace of Christ. Simply to hold up our, hold our hands out and say, Thank you, Lord. And it will be counted to us as righteousness. We will be justified by faith as Abraham was. And so there is much more to say about this Abrahamic covenant. We're going to describe it, to describe its character. This is the first point about it. It is a covenant of promise, characterized by promise, and this promise is ratified, guaranteed by an oath which God himself made through a covenantal ratification ceremony which prefigures and prophesies and foreshadows the greater sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, which is the guarantee of the new covenant in his blood. May God bless this message to us tonight. Let us live in wonder and gratitude and such free grace, such condescension to we who are sinners.